This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I want to tell you first that uh, I am a real practicing scientist. I am um, energetic, creative, driven by a desire for a pursuit of knowledge. Um, And I also admit that as a scientist, that doesn't mean that I actually know all that much better about what should or should not be done, but I know what is being done and I know what could be done with it. And that's really what I want the purpose of our conversation today to be, because when it comes to what should and should not be done, I really think that that needs to be a conversation that is had far more broadly. Not everyone will win in the long term in those kinds of conversations, but ultimately if scientists and the public are mutually engaged in these kinds of conversations, then what actually does get done hopefully balances the benefits and risks to the best so that uh, all of society can get as much out of that cost-benefit analysis as possible. Okay, so with that said, um, I'm actually going to tell you about what my lab does that isn't trying to engineer mice with selfish genes, and that's because I'm an evolutionary biologist, and I study this thing, which is not a mouse. It's called a gerboa. Um, It's spelled J-E-R-B-O-A. This is totally normal. We did not do this in the lab. Evolution did this. (laughs) We have not done this in the lab yet which I'll get to in a moment. But um, this is an animal that's adapted to live in sparsely vegetated uh, deserts. The reason that it has this kind of crazy locomotion is because it lives in these open environments where there's not as much cover, not as much protection from a predator. And I can attest to the fact that these are really, really hard to catch. So that's the evolutionary advantage of having this kind of skeletal structure. And it really is um, largely the skeletal structure. So one of the big questions that my lab is interested in answering is how proportion gets established. So you can probably appreciate that these two species have very, very different skeletal proportions. But that's not just an evolutionary question that we would like to answer, how is proportion established, it's actually also uh, a question in human health and human development. And that's because you can probably appreciate that skeletal proportion changes throughout the adolescent to to adult growth of an individual, which is a really good thing. Otherwise, we'd all walk around looking like giant fetuses. And I rather like my adult um, smaller head and longer arms and legs. Okay, so um, the way that we're going about trying to understand what um, evolution has done to reshape the skeleton is we identify regions in the genome of this species, the gerboa, that we think might be responsible for, mechanistically responsible for some of these differences in skeletal growth. And we want to take those genes from a mouse, delete them, and stick in the same location of a gerboa. So basically create this kind of mixture of mouse and gerboa genome. And the idea is that if this piece of DNA from the gerboa is indeed responsible for that evolutionary change, then we should be able to replicate that in a laboratory animal and say what the actual contribution to the difference in development is, which means that instead of saying we think evolution may have done X, Y, and Z, we can say evolution actually did X, Y, and Z, and that's how we have different animals' um, shapes and body forms. Okay, so I'm going to give you, because this is going to be important for the rest of what we're going to talk about, um, 
How many of you have taken a genetics class before? How many of you who have taken a genetics class before have not thought about genetics in more than two years? <laughs> yeah, okay. So, um, so some of you have not had genetics, and of the people who have had genetics, it's been a while. Okay, so the basics of Mendelian inheritance, let's say you have a black mouse, and, and first of all, every, uh, okay, almost every animal has two copies of each chromosome in your body. So there are two copies of every gene, and you got one of those from your mother and one from your father, right? So this black mouse has one black copy of this gene on one chromosome and another black copy on the other chromosome. This mouse is albino in both of those locations. So if you cross these two one another, each of them will randomly contribute one of those chromosomes, one of those genes, uh, one of the copies of those genes to their offspring. And because this one can only contribute a black and this one can only contribute an albino, all of these individuals will be black at one site and albino at the other site. Is that everyone following so far? Now, because of this phenomena of dominance, if this animal is making the protein that's encoded by the black version of the gene, it's going to be black no matter what the other one looks like, what, no matter what the other copy is. So now we cross these individuals to one another, and it gets a little bit more complicated. And so now, because of this random assortment and, and sort of reconnection at fertilization of these different versions of this gene, um, one quarter of the individuals will have two copies of the black version. Two of them, half of them, I should say half of them, will have one of each, and a quarter of them will have two of the white ones. Okay? Okay. So if you wanted to get one of these individuals, you're limited somewhat by the fact that this, this principle of genetics means that getting this particular copy and this particular copy is going to happen 25% of, of all the possible combinations of these genes. All right. So this is a problem when you're trying to do things that are complicated. If you're looking at, at single gene genetics, a quarter of your desired genotype, if this is your desired genotype, a quarter is not so bad. But with every gene that you add to that, if you're trying to make complicated genotypes, then the probabilities get diminishingly small. And what I mean is, so if, in particular in our question, there's probably not one gene that was mutated in the course of evolution and you got these crazy long jerboa legs, right? It's probably multiple genes that were mutated over millions of years, an accumulation of all of these different changes throughout an animal's genome or throughout um, multiple generations is, is going to add up to the phenotype, the way that the animals look right now. And so... If you want to try to recapitulate what evolution has actually done, that means you need to try to bring in lots of genes from the jerboa into a mouse and see what the combination of all of those evolutionary changes does to the skeleton of a mouse. Okay? So that's our goal. We want to try and see what evolution actually did. All right. Back to genetics. So now, let's say we have three genes... And we want to combine these uh, individuals. So this is an animal that has a big A and a little a, a big B and a little b, et cetera, et cetera. There's two different versions of each of these three genes, right? 
We cross these to each other, and just because of probability, and you don't have to think about exactly how the math works, I'll tell you how the math works. If you do some back-of-the-envelope calculation, you need 143 baby mice for a 90% probability that one of those animals is going to have this genotype if that's the one that you want. This keeps me up at night. (laughs) Because um, I have a decent amount of grant money to try to understand evolution, and the people who gave me that money are really, really smart, And I'm sure they trusted that we would figure it out. But I've always kind of worried about the fact that genetics is not working in our favor. And so the problem with this is um, raising mice costs a lot of money. It costs, on average, across institutions in the United States, it's about a dollar per cage of mice per day that you're housing them. And you can only keep about three or four mice in a cage at a time. So people are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars in mouse work per lab per year across the country. It also takes an enormous amount of time because bringing all of these different genotypes together takes multiple generations to get even to that point of a few of the correct individuals. So that's people time and it's also animal time. And think about the fact that 143 of those animals were needed in my back of the envelope calculations to get one that was right. So that's 142 lives that were not necessary, that have no further purpose in our research. And so if we could do something to improve the efficiency of mouse genetics in the laboratory, that would maybe, can we all agree that might be like a pretty good deal, right? Okay, so the thing is that it's not just for me, right? Because uh, complex genotypes are, are a thing that pretty much every mouse geneticist would like to be able to accomplish. So this is a universal challenge for rodent genetics in biomedical sciences. And so this is where my interest really comes from in trying to um, harness these newly emerging technologies. And and that brings us to this question of whether these so-called selfish genes can help us to overcome some of these obstacles. So now I'm going to switch into some technology talk, out of genetics into some technology. I'm going to explain to you what we mean about selfish genes. And before we do that, I want to introduce you to the concept of CRISPR. So uh, even just the word CRISPR, have you heard this word before? Okay, so a lot of people have heard this word before. Okay, so the principle of how CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing works is that there are two components. There's a protein component, and there's an RNA component. The protein component here is blue. It's called Cas9. It's a Cas9 protein. And what it does is it catalyzes. It it actually cuts DNA. But it doesn't just go about cutting DNA willy-nilly. It is actually guided by this, what's called a guide RNA, to a very specific sequence in the genome. And so if you have a specifically encoded guide RNA that you combine with this Cas9 protein, that complex will search through the genome. It's going to find the site that it is programmed to cut, and it's going to make a break in the DNA. Okay? So it's a two-component system, which is important. All right. So the principle of all of this technology is that if you have Cas9 and the guide RNA... Uh, complexed together as a protein and an RNA, and it finds this piece that it is supposed to cut in the genome, and it makes a cut, 
One of the ways that that cut can be glued back together again to make a, a single uniform piece of DNA is using sequence information from the other chromosome, from the homologous chromosome. And if it does that and there are differences at that site between the two chromosomes, what it does in the process of repairing this cut is that it actually copies over what was on the other chromosome. This, is, this happens in the cells of your body all the time. It especially happens during the development of sperm and eggs because this process of DNA exchange is what shuffles up the genome every time uh, a new generation is in the process of being produced reprodu in, in reproduction. And so by harnessing this tool, you can program this system to make a very specific cut in the genome and then rely on these innate repair mechanisms to take something that was present only one out of the two copies and make it both of the copies. So you basically remove the thing that was there and replace it with the thing that you want it to be. And then instead of this being transmitted to half of the offspring of this individual, it will be transmitted to all of the offspring of that individual. Okay, is that clear? Okay, good, because that was really important. All right, so this, when all the components are put together, when this guide RNA and the Cas9 are together, then those components are what is catalyzing this whole process. Those components are what's making this whole process happen. And so it can happen on its own. You don't have to add any other outside factors to the system for this to occur. And so anytime you get this element in one copy, it will copy itself over to the other chromosome. That's the principle of a gene drive. So if this happens in reproductive uh, species, it can, you can imagine now that that could spread through a population because every time an animal breeds, it will transmit the thing you want it to to all of its offspring. Okay? Okay, so that's not what we're doing. Um, so... This is, this is what I just showed you, where it's the Cas9 protein and the guide RNA together in this location. But if you take the protein out and you stick it somewhere else in the genome, this now can't copy itself over because it only has one of the two components. Okay? And so what that means is um, you have to cross an animal that has this thing to an animal that has the Cas9 protein so that the two things can come together in that particular offspring. And then you can get this sort of copying phenomena to occur. And so um, I'm going to illustrate this to you. So if you have this animal that expresses the Cas9 protein and you made it to this animal that has this fancy allele, this fancy copy of, of a particular gene that you're interested in that you want to be transmitted to all of the babies. You cross these to each other, and in their babies, they will have the um, Cas9 protein, which is not in my final version of this, um, together with the guide RNA that comes from this thing here, right here. And so there it is, right? So this protein from that animal comes together with the guide RNA that came from this animal. And when they merge in this offspring, that's where the cutting and the copying will occur. 
But this system, because you have to bring two different mice together for it to work in their babies, is reliant on a researcher picking the right two mice together. And it doesn't pass throughout a whole population with the kind of dynamics that a true gene drive does. And so this gives us greater biosafety control in the laboratory. We don't have to worry about animals escaping. And it lets us do a lot of really fantastic biomedical applications of this kind of technology. And so um, the advantage is that biomedical research, as I emphasized in the very beginning, would really benefit from this kind of work in the sense that we can save an enormous amount of money, time, and lives of animals by being able to make these kinds of things that we can control whether or not they end up getting inherited by all of the offspring that we want them to inherit. Um, The applications include complex genetic diseases, some sorts of neurodegenerative diseases, some developmental disorders where large regions of the genome may be deleted. Some of those genes are actually, just because of evolution, they're not all together in mice. So it's harder to model those diseases because you have to make a mutation here, 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 and here throughout a genome. And so it's much, much harder to study some of these really complex genetic diseases in humans using traditional model systems, traditional laboratory animals. And another benefit is, I don't know, have you guys heard that mice are actually not humans? Right? So um, we poured a lot of money into using mice in biomedical research, and, and we've made enormous gains studying mice. But maybe no surprise, because we're something like, I don't know, 95 million years separated from a mouse, um, there are a lot of differences between mice and humans. And some of those differences are actually in our immunity and in our metabolism. And so if we can make mice that are a little bit more human in some aspects of their immune system and their metabolism, they could be much, much better models for studying infectious diseases and for developing designer drugs that would benefit humanity. So there are some, there's some value to doing this in the laboratory. Okay, so I've told you this way of splitting the two components from each other genetically doesn't spread. So this is not a gene drive. But... Um, Once one demonstrates that this works in rodents, it's really not hard to just put the two things together and make it a gene drive. There's not really any difference um, technologically once it works. You just put those two pieces together again. And so that's why we're here today, because um, this is something I want to talk about. And, and I want to talk about everything else that I said, too. I want to talk about whatever you want to talk about. But this is where I think the real conversation um, moving forward, the riskier side of things are sitting right here. And um, the reason that this is something that, in a practical sense, really needs to be discussed is that others have suggested, particularly people who live in places where invasive rodent species have been a huge problem, island communities in particular, because they're, they're closed environments. And in a, if a non-native rodent gets introduced into a closed environment where it can become a top predator, it can decimate the native populations on that island. And so people have proposed theoretically as an idea that these kinds of gene drive technologies could be introduced to these island rodent populations. And if these elements encode things that 
um, make the offspring sterile, then over time you could breed out that island population that basically isn't supposed to be there. Okay, so, so this is the biggest thing that people have talked about with the possible application of this kind of technology. Um, many others have cautioned against this. Some people have cautioned very practically in the sense that because this whole system relies on uh, very specific sequences, incredibly specific sequences, all it takes is a mutation in that sequence and then your drive is no longer effective. That, that the population can evolve immunity to this sort of thing occurring. And mutations happen all the time. Just DNA replication errors, gamma radiation from the uh, universe, et cetera. Um, another concern is whether or not by releasing these organisms, you're basically releasing essentially another invasive species, right? And so that's something that we need to think about as well. Is there some reason why we couldn't then control the population that we've introduced to control the first population? And Australia has, no offense to anyone from Australia, I think that we can learn from a model of maybe not releasing things without really carefully thinking about the um, implications, the effects of some of the things that we're trying to do for the good of an ecosystem. And then the other big concern is whether or not these things, we could say that releasing them on an island will geographically constrain them to the island, but rodents got to the island. So there's reason to maybe have some concern about whether things can get off of the island again and whether you really have the kind of geographical um, limitations that, um, that you think you have. So scientists are thinking about this. This is what I want to tell you is that we are all thinking about this. And there is probably just as much fear and concern within the scientific community as there is within the public. And the reason that I know this is because scientists have come together to agree on a set of principles for any research that is done in, in gene drives. And some people have also called for a moratorium on doing any of this research until we pause and think carefully about what we're doing. So the principles are, um, the goal should be to advance quality science to promote public good. That's first and foremost the most, and I didn't write these. These are directly out of a policy paper written by a bunch of really smart people, not including me. And so the, the next principle would be to promote stewardship, safety, and good governance over that research. The idea is that scientists are working for the public and that everything that we're doing should be guided by that mission. Um, to demonstrate transparency and accountability so that no one is concerned that these mad scientists are off doing their devious things without being open about what it is that we're trying to accomplish and why. To engage thoughtfully with affected communities, stakeholders, and the public, which is why I'm here today, because I want to hear what you guys think, and to foster opportunities that strengthen capacity and education, which is the other reason why I'm here today. And so I'm going to end, this is my last slide, on um, some thoughts that if quality science is conducted to promote public good following these safety guidelines, and if what we're doing is, is not, if, if what my lab is doing is not ever intended to be released out into the wild, and then we can have a conversation about others that might have those intentions. Um, but applications of the research that we are doing 
while it has broadly beneficial tech, um, approaches, can be used in many other ways. How much control do I have over the work that I'm doing versus what other people do? Who's accountable? And um, this is something I find really, really interesting. I was an undergraduate at Cornell University, and my very first semester, I uh, had the privilege, really, of sitting in on a seminar with Hans Bethe, who is a nuclear physicist. He won the Nobel Prize. He did an enormous amount of work in nuclear physics, um, trying to understand energy from, from, uh, from stars, and, and he also was working on the Los Alamos project. And so uh, one of the students asked a question at the end about whether he felt responsible, if, if he felt that his entire career leading up to the work that he did um, in Los Alamos was all collectively responsible. And his argument was, where do you draw the line, basically? Um, and, and, and I am drawing a bit of an analogy here because I don't, I don't personally plan to do anything um, releasing animals in the wild, but I am participating. And so that's something that I want to hear from people, of like who's responsible for the application of technologies. And then last, the, the big um, question is whether any of these concerns should halt or slow research progress, and what's the trade-off there? And that's all I have prepared for you, because I want to spend the rest of the night talking. So the, the, the plan now is we're going to um, have a little bit of a conversation with our speaker and panelist, Ramya, um, and also then take your questions as well as those that you have written down. Um, and I think maybe a really appropriate way to start now would be to ask Ramya, which I didn't warn her about, but maybe, Ramya, based on what you've heard, do you have any sort of overarching <laughs> comments about, um, you know, the challenges of a new technology like this and what we might want to be thinking about? Um, yeah, so as Kim was, as Kim was talking... Um, I was thinking a lot about how many of the technologies we have and use already very commonly in our society are what we might consider a kind of dual-use technology. And dual-use technologies are very, it's a very particular term. It refers to technologies that can be used uh, both for um, sort of everyday commercial uses, domestic uses, household uses, as well as military uses. But if we think about technologies like the automobile, or the, the simple you know, kitchen knife. These are technologies that we use every day for very um, benign purposes, but they also, in the wrong hands, can become very harmful technologies. And so one of the things we have to think about with gene drives um, and thinking about whether we want to release them into the wild is these, this idea of how can they be used to benefit societies in very, very impactful ways? How can they benefit biomedical research, as Kim talked about? But also, what are the potential harms and risks that they might entail, and how they might be abused by um, individuals who we can't predict, we can't necessarily locate easily, but who might have nefarious purposes and might you know, repurpose technologies for those kinds of purposes. And I think this speaks a little bit to what Kim was um, sort of uh, posing as a question towards the end of her presentation, which is, you know, to what extent are different stakeholders in this process of regulating technologies responsible for the potential um, harms and the potential unintended consequences of those technologies? 
So. Um, so structurally, it might be useful, and actually I know that at least one of the questions at the break was asking a question about the technology. So does, it, if, if, does anybody have questions they would like to ask about how this works to make sure we're all on the same page, anything that might not have been clear? Okay, so let me preface this by saying I am not a geneticist, nor do I have any intent on becoming one because I'm not nearly that smart. So I... Oh. No, 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 no. Really, I'm not. No. <laughs> My question is really simple. How long? What's the time span between when you start the cut and the new? Uh, it's all from A to Z. How long does that take? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, no, it really is. So the average animal cell divides once in about 24 hours. And so when this happens, a cut is going to be made at some point in that cell's cycle. And that repair has to be made before the cell divides in two. So the actual conversion is really quick. That getting inherited into the next generation and becoming an animal is no different in time from any other sexual reproductive process. And then the other simple question is, why couldn't you just do two white mice to get white mice instead of going? Oh, you can totally do that. But Wouldn't that be simpler than going through all that mess? Anyway, never mind. <laughs> so the issue is that not all the genes that you want in the end are going to start out in the same animals. <laughs> but yes, you're right. That would be the fastest way to make more white mice. <laughs> and just to be clear, those two questions were good enough that you do qualify to be a geneticist. Yeah. <laughs> we'll confer you an honorary genetics degree right now. So, <laughs> so any other questions about the technology before we go into its use or, or misuse. I, I just had a question on, uh, since like a body of an animal has billions, trillions maybe of cells, I don't understand how if you modify one cell, how does that replicate throughout the entire body? Right. Oh, I love these questions. Um, these are the kinds of things that you don't think you need to explain until you talk to someone who has like a, just a totally different perspective on things. So if you were to change one of the, they're called somatic cells, the, the non-sperm and egg-making cells of your body that make up all the rest of your tissues, then only that cell and its descendants would have that change. So like very locally in your body, you would have a change. What we're talking about here, though, are manipulations that are occurring in the lineage of cells that make the sperm and the egg. And, and if you make a change in those cells, then when the sperm and the egg combine to make the single-celled embryo, and then it divides and divides and makes an entire animal, then all of the cells and all of the tissues of that animal's body will have inherited that change because this is encoded in the genome. And, and the genome that came from your mother and your father is the same genome in almost every cell in your body with some exceptions that are nuanced that I won't get into. <laughs> Thanks. I'm Ray. Uh, yeah, when you do the CRISPR thing, is it, is it easy to mess up? Like, you meant to change one gene, but somehow it changed another one. And, you know, is that something, no, that can't happen, it's very definite, and, you know, or is it... Yeah, 
That, so that's another really good question. So, so I'll answer this in two parts. So the first part of the question is recognizing that if you're talking about this sort of gene drive conversion, two things have to be true in the DNA. One thing is the specificity of the cut that you make. And the other that I nuanced, glossed over because I was trying not to complicate things too much is that in that chromosome that it's aligned with, you make a, so you make a cut in one chromosome and its partner is sitting right there ready to repair it, you also have to have identical DNA sequences on either side of what's going to make the repair. And so if you make a cut somewhere else in the genome, your thing can't jump into that site because there's nothing else around that site that looks like it. And that identity is essential. The second part of your question that you didn't know you were asking, or actually the first part is probably the part you didn't know you were asking, the second part is what you were asking, is sort of these off-target mutations, right? I think that's really what you're asking. Off-target mutations, if you talk to scientists, different scientists will tell you different things. So some people will say they've never observed mutations anywhere else in the genome other than what they intended to make. Uh, Others will say they have. The thing is, too, that mutations are happening all the time. So when do you really know that a particular mutation is because of what you did versus the mutations that would have occurred? You can use math to answer that question. Um, but, but the fix to that is that there are also a lot of scientists trying to improve the technology so that this protein and guide RNA complex are more and more and more faithful. You can engineer the components so that there's a lower probability of that actually happening. Okay. um, One more question, then we'll get on to the other pieces. Uh, Another ethics presentation a few months ago about insects they talked about modifying a mosquito to eliminate its care capabilities for disease and releasing it in a small geographic area. But they also discussed the fact that it was reversible and they could therefore re-enter a different population and correct the problem for some unforeseen and unintended consequence. Do you think that also applies to mammals? Yes. So um, the researchers that you're referring to are close colleagues of mine in the Division of Biological Sciences at UCSD. They're the ones that uh, first developed this technology in insects, and we're extending it into mammals. So they're a little bit farther along in the technology development of things. And um, because they've demonstrated that this works in insects, they're thinking about exactly this. If you can do it, can you reverse it? So that research is ongoing. Um, I think hypothetically it it should work, but they haven't actually demonstrated proof of principle. And because um, the, the molecular biology, the mechanisms of this seem to be identical in insects and in rodents, I don't see a reason why that wouldn't also work in rodents, with the exception of the fact that rodents have a much longer lifespan than a mosquito does. And so you have to take that into consideration anytime you're thinking about implementing something that will spread through a population, either in a drive or a reversal of a drive, is that generation time is going to impact the dynamics of that process. 
And so as we segue here, it's probably a good time to remind you of something that's already been said, but I, I think Dr. Cooper will appreciate me saying this. She is not planning to put this type of gene drive into a wild population of rodents, but she is very nicely trying to think ahead to what if somebody wanted to use this technology, what are the risks, what are the possible benefits, and how do we protect against the risks? Is that a fair That is totally fair. And one of the reasons we're here is actually because I wrote a grant proposal to do the earliest stages of developing this technology. And other scientists in the peer review process were like, wait, 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 wait. We can't release transgenic animals into the environment. And my response was, that's not what my grant is about. And so that started this conversation so that I could address those criticisms by writing back to the grant reviewers and saying, I am considering ethics. I'm not going rogue. (laughs) And also, this proves that those of you who are not clear on that point are now qualified to be scientists on review panels. That is, because, yeah, sure, that's true. <laughs> okay, so, um, so I'm going to, actually, I was going to ask my own questions, but these are so good, I wanted to go to these first. Um, so the, I think one of the central questions you asked towards the end was about the responsibility for something that might be used that was inappropriate, even if you did not intend to use this for releasing to the wild. And somebody might do that prematurely or for inappropriate reasons. And I'd like both Ramya and you to address this kind of question. They said, distinguish between responsible for that and blame for that. And I think, you know, take that one step further. So what should happen to whom? What are we going to, what are we supposed to do with the fact that we're saying somebody is responsible or to blame? And I don't, that might be more of a question for Ramya than Kim. But what, <laughs> I think so. I'm curious to know the answer. <laughs> well, I'm not sure I have a definitive answer for that. Um, I mean, I think there are, uh, you know, there's sort of the judiciary uh, definition of blame and responsibility, and that's defined by the courts, that's defined by the legal systems that we have. In many cases, those legal systems aren't necessarily triggered as uh, avenues for assigning responsibility or blame to scientists. So, for example, in the case of uh, technology like the atomic bomb, there was no responsibility or blame assigned within the U.S. legal system for, those, um, for the use of that technology. On the other hand, many um, eugenicists, for example, in the Nazi regime were called to trial and were held responsible for their crimes. So these are extremely heinous crimes. These are crimes of um, murder and crimes of genocide. This is not the sort of discussion necessarily that applies to gene drives at this point. We're not at that stage at all. Um, And hopefully we never will be. Um, But in thinking about responsibility and blame, it's important to think about those kinds of legal precedents. And it's also important, I think, to consider the sort of public court of opinion and how individuals and societies hold different groups or stakeholders responsible for adverse outcomes. Um, In the case of gene drive, I think we're still at the point where we're just speculating about a lot of these potential outcomes and a lot of the future possibilities. I don't think we're at the point now where we could really think about um, in uh, in a very tangible or substantive way how to assign responsibility and blame. But I think the hope is that with scientists like Kim and scientists like others at UCSD who are thinking through the ethical um, and social dimensions of these technologies as they're being developed in the very earliest stages of development, that we sort of um, 
make this a question of communal responsibility, that we involve publics and stakeholders in the debate and the deliberation, and that we take into account what different communities need and want when we're balancing the sort of benefits and harms of a technology and deciding whether to release it into the wild. And I, I just want to add to that. Um, whether or not there is a formal judicial system that hands down decisions, punishments, whatever, the court of public opinion can be just as devastating. And so, um, you know, there are scientists who have themselves been threatened, their families have been threatened um, because of that court of public opinion. And so, you know, maybe, maybe whatever they did wasn't uh, warranting time in prison or anything, but if... if any movement within the public, how, however small it is, because it doesn't take very many people to really destroy someone's life, like that's also something that we should talk about because the, the greater public conversation about these kinds of things influences individual people and their actions. And so by having these conversations early, having the broader public understand and involved in those conversations, maybe the general tone of the conversation goes in such a way that individuals are less likely to, um, to, to punish people. It, it occurs to me that even though many of you described yourselves as not being geneticists and knowledgeable about genetics, based on being here this evening, you now know more about this than most of your neighbors know. Um, and you probably know enough to have a gut feeling now. Should we hold Dr. Cooper responsible? <laughs> if somebody takes the technology she refines and uses it in mice, is she responsible for, for that in any sense? Or do we let her off the hook and say she's just a scientist trying to do good things? That wasn't a rhetorical question. I'd, I'd actually like to hear what people think about we, that. We could start with show of hands. How many think she's responsible? <laughs> okay. No, I people. mean, be honest. Like, if you think that someone else taking this technology is going to release it into the wild, does that take precedent over the possible advances to knowledge and uh, benefits to biomedical sciences? That's the question that I want to know. Yeah. Can, can we take a, Absolutely. a well, few but, hands but here We need there? you to come to the microphone because yeah. otherwise it won't be heard. So, I think it can be helpful in that question to look at the age-old question of whether or not science has a moral obligation. Okay, you've heard that question. All right. In thinking about that, I, my feeling is that we need to distinguish between science and technology. Let's define science as the study of natural phenomena, okay? The basic pursuit of knowledge and understanding. Exactly. Okay. Okay? Now, it's also a method of investigating that, you know, that knowledge, but that's it. Technology, on the other hand, we can say the use of that information, does that have a moral obligation, all right? And I think the answer to that, or we wouldn't be sitting here, is yes, it does. Okay? Technology does have a moral obligation. So in looking at what you're doing, or you know, what any scientist is doing, 
if we could distinct pick out the science part from the technology part, then I think we'd be in a better position to address the ethics of it, the moral of it. That was a beautiful point. And I'm going to complicate it. <laughs> well, okay. And the reason I'm going to complicate it is because in my laboratory, we have centrifuges, we have pipetters, we have microscopes, we have balances to weigh things. Those are all technologies that are essential to conducting science. And so if someone comes into my laboratory and uses a scale to weigh out drugs, <laughs> that's a nefarious application of technology whose primary purpose is scientific. So that was kind of, you know. Yeah, but I think if you look an at... An extreme the, example, but, but that's where it, it's gray. Not, to me, not really. Okay. <laughs> okay? Because that centrifuge is working, it exists as possible because of science that has been done on electromagnetism, okay, and understanding electromagnetism. If it weren't for that, you wouldn't have your centrifuge. Right. So that centrifuge is an application of the science, not the science itself. And you're using that technology to either advance some, you know, answer some scientific investigation, which does not have a moral responsibility. Right. Okay? But certainly the use of the centrifuge for what you're using it for, that technology does have a moral obligation, but certainly it's not immoral to do what you're doing with it. If I were to spin, um, take live animals, right, yeah, yeah. and put them in a centrifuge. Right. Now, i got a moral problem. Yeah. <laughs> I think I do, okay? So, but what you're using it for is for a scientific investigation. It becomes a, the scientific method, all right? So it's at a different scale. That's just my... I, I, I completely see your point, in part because we're using examples of things that are technologies as opposed to um, applications of approaches that are also technologies. And this is something that I think I, wanna, I want you to pipe in on the difference between the two. But the first thing I want to say is that we're not trying to get this all to work for a scientific purpose. It, it, we're not trying to get this sort of gene drive technology to work in the lab out of a fundamental pursuit of does it work. We want to use that to understand mechanisms of evolutionary biology. And others might want to use that approach to understand complex human diseases. And so I think in some ways, without it being a material, tangible technology, it still falls within, at least when you talk to the patent offices, it counts as a technology. Yeah, but, but I, I love all the points that you made because these are really, really important distinctions about um, responsibility and the moral obligation of a pursuit of knowledge versus an application of technologies. Uh, yes. Oh. So thank you. Thank you. 
So but just before we leave that point, and then you could come up to the microphone, just before we leave that point, something that should be said, but we don't have time, I think, to discuss tonight, maybe a future program, is two questions embedded here. One is, is there a moral obligation to do science? And there's an argument for not always having that obligation. And that's something that might be worth discussing. And the other is, is there a moral obligation against doing some kinds of science? And some people could argue in certain cases. This gentleman over here, if you use the microphone. Hi, uh, I got a quick question for you, doctor. Um, just to fast forward past the mice, do you personally think CRISPR technology should be used on humans for non-medical purposes? And the second part of my question is, can you please talk a little bit more about the Cas9 protein? Why is it so essential to this, uh, to the CRISPR editing process and the technology? Where is this protein found, and and um, where is it located in the cell, if not the nucleus? Where is this protein? Is it, is it outside the nucleus, and so forth? Thank yeah. you. Yeah, uh, both are very very good questions. Uh, the first one, I, I can I abstain from answering. <laughs> um, I, I think we're walking into really dangerous territory if we start doing things in humans for non-medical purposes, because that walks a slippery slope, and then where do you go from there? Um, people have talked about it, uh, using gene editing for therapeutics, for treating disease. In that area of research, I'm not... Uh, the difference between using a drug as a therapy and using CRISPR as a therapy is that the drug is not going to be passed on to the next generation, whereas a manipulation that you make in the genome of an individual is going to change not just that individual but all of their children. And if that person has a high probability of passing on a horrible genetic disease and they know that none of their children and none of their grandchildren on down the lineage will ever have to live with that disorder... With, and they're never going to have to take a drug for it, that's, that's I, I can't say that. I'm, it's not my immediate area of research, and it's not something that I have personally experienced with. But I'd have a harder time there saying no versus, you know, I want my kid to have an IQ of X, which we can't do genetically anyway. Um, and anyone who says you can doesn't understand complex genetics. <laughs> um, or, you know, eye color, hair color, height. What, well, height's also really complicated. Um, so there actually aren't even that many things that you could modify that would change the way a person looks or acts or whatever. Rom, you don't want to, do you want to address the slippery slope at all here? <laughs> um, I mean, I, I can talk a little bit. So, so with, so with cr using CRISPR as a genome editing tool, for example, to make a designer baby... This is the big concern right now, is that people might use CRISPR and Cas9 to engineer future generations of humans. And I think that's where you get into this slippery slope, um, even if it's for medical reasons. Because there's a lot about medical genetics, even for very simple Mendelian traits, that we don't necessarily understand all of the biological interactions that are happening. And so changing genes, going in there and tinkering, can have, again, these unintended consequences that if we don't try to really research and anticipate what those could be would cause problems down the road for the species. Um, 
But I think, as Kim pointed out, there is a difference between, you know, sort of therapeutic uses of CRISPR and enhancement uses of CRISPR. We might all agree that it's not fair to give anybody a competitive advantage with CRISPR, you know, an elevated IQ, if that were even possible, which, as Kim pointed out, it's probably not with genetics. Um, but we might hesitate when it comes to, you know, saving uh, an infant who has a debilitating pediatric disease and they're going to die at the age of eight unless they get this gene mutated back to the original version. And so that's where, again, we get into these questions of moral values, ethical values, whose lives are being valued, and how we deploy this technology to benefit people, to reduce suffering, um, to increase happiness in our species, and in ways that doesn't compromise the happiness of others in our species, and that's the critical thing, is making sure that the benefits are equally distributed. It occurs to me we should step back just for a moment because we are using the terminology slippery slope, and I'm not sure if everybody is familiar with that. It's used often in philosophical discussions about ethical challenges, saying if you go five miles an hour over the speed limit today, tomorrow you'll go seven miles over the speed limit, and the next day you'll be traveling at the same speed as everybody else on the freeways, which is clearly dangerous. So, so that, that kind of slippery slope. So one interesting perspective on this that I've heard from some philosophers is to, is to recognize that all life is full of slippery slopes. And the question is, can you find anchors, places where you can hold on to the slopes so you don't slip further down? Because the reality is, as soon as you decide to start making any changes for any medical disease, and I think this is where Ramya was going, then you're on the slippery slope. Because if you say you do this for this disease because it's bad enough, then what about for this one? Pretty soon you might be talking about hearing loss. Well, that's where I was just going. Because if you start talking about hearing loss, many of us would say, oh, well, everybody should be able to hear. It's, it's, It's central to life. But people who are part of the deaf community would say something very different. They'd say... Um, oh, oh, do we have somebody from the? Somebody knows about the? Okay, okay. <laughs> so, not knowing where that slippery slope is going to take you, it means we need to think about how do we anchor ourselves before we go down that path. Which is why I think Kim is preferring not to weigh in yet. Uh, yeah, do. I don't know that I have answers, so I have a hard time answering that question. But I do. Before we get um, onto another topic, I want to answer your second question because that was. Unrelated, but also very good, um, and something that I didn't talk about. So you do not you do not have Cas9 protein in your bodies. That's not a human gene. It's not normally in animals. Even it comes from bacteria. So um, there's this sort of arms race happening in microbes that are fighting each other all the time. Um, do you guys? How many people know about restriction enzymes? Recombinant DNA, okay, the people in my lab plus a few other people. <laughs> yeah, there are plants in the room. Um, so, so these are proteins that, just like Cas9, can cut DNA, but the protein itself, without having any other accessory, can recognize very specific short sequences to make those cuts. Um, those originally came from bacteria also, because bacteria are always trying to prevent the infection of viruses that are trying to get them. And so they've evolved these mechanisms to be able to cut up viral DNA so that it, it can't make the bacteria sick. And, and Scientists have already taken those bacterial genes that make these restriction enzyme proteins and use them to cut up pieces of DNA in all kinds of ways. So if anyone um, wants to acknowledge if you are diabetic, uh, insulin-dependent diabetic, um, 
you are benefiting from molecular biology technologies that are possible because of a very, very similar concept that was taken out of this sort of microbial community fighting with each other. And then we just harness that to be able to cut up pieces of DNA that make human insulin protein and stick those into bacteria so that we can make lots and lots and lots of insulin in bioreactors of bacteria. I, I think it's important for the total context here. Your presentation today in its entirety is, is emphasizing that there are scientists working on these tough and interesting questions, but they are also human beings, and that they are trying to, they're struggling with questions like, what will happen with the use of this technology? I might learn these neat, great, valuable things, but how might it be used um, that might, might fall Yeah, out. so thank you for asking. Okay, okay. I said thank you for asking because I meant it, and now I'm saying an extra. Okay. Thank you for so, asking because so, you're right. And thank you for answering. Okay, so, and now my job is to be um, the evil moderator. We should bring, we should close the program, so, and, and if people have additional questions, please feel free to come up um, and ask. I want to thank Ramia and Kim. This was outstanding. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.